So um, before I read the passage and um, give the word that I believe God's given me um, for all of us as a church this afternoon, let me just talk a little bit about our midweek things. So as you know, we're a brand new church. We're officially only seven days old. We launched, um, launched last week. Give us a wave if you were here last week for our launch. Um, quite a few of you. And um, thank you so much for being with us. We had a wonderful, wonderful time. And so we're a brand new church, came, literally came into existence last week legally as a church, as Bishop, our bishop signed the, all the paperwork. And so we want to um, do what it is that we believe God has called us to do here in Newcastle, which is tell as many people as possible the good news of Jesus Christ and declare to everybody that Jesus is Lord by serving them through acts of service, as well as proclaiming the good news of Jesus and seeing our city transform transformed. If you want to hear the vision, then just listen back on our Spotify podcast to last week's um, vision talk. But we don't want to just do stuff on Sundays because Sundays were amazing and Christians from literally from the beginning have gathered to worship Jesus on Sunday and to encourage one another. But that's not enough. And so we're also going to do some midweek gatherings. Now, our vision statement here is based around three things, following Jesus, building community and loving Newcastle. So following Jesus, giving all of our worship, our devotion to him because he's the one who saved us. And um, that's kind of like, that's worship, worshiping God, following Jesus in everything, just laying our lives before him. Building community, that's what the church is called to do with one another, loving one another, encouraging one another, sparing one another on with the Bible, with the gospel, praying for one another. That's kind of like our inward life. And then loving Newcastle, seeing this amazing city and indeed the whole region and the nation transformed. That's the job of every church. It's kind of almost like this three-dimensional thing, up worship in building community out serving the city and so over the next year because we are brand new we're going to be doing stuff on Sundays and also we're going to be doing stuff midweek and we're starting this Tuesday evening and I know that's not an ideal time for all of us particularly if we've got kids and so there's going to be some daytime stuff for parents and kids coming up over the next few weeks as well and this term we're going to be focusing on up on worshiping Jesus praying together and really seeking in the in the start of this new adventure that God is calling us on what is it that God is calling us to as a new church family here in Newcastle. After Christmas, we're going to be doing Sundays and then Alpha and just inviting lots of people to come and explore the, the meaning of life and to ask their big questions and all of that kind of thing. And then after Easter, we'll be doing on the back of Alpha, launching small groups and um, missional communities and all of those types of things. And so we're really over the next 12 months taking a little bit of time just to really develop our vision statement here and to literally put it into practice as a brand new church family. And so we start this Tuesday at half past seven, we're gonna be praying into the vision um, and we're going to be discerning together what it means for us to follow Jesus, build community and love Newcastle. And so we would love for you to join us. And it's on the back of this that we'll launch Alpha and small groups into the future. So please do join us Tuesday, half past seven in here. Be great to see you there. So we're continuing our journey today through Luke's gospel. We're at Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. So if you've got a Bible, either open it or if you've got a digital one, turn it on. And we're going to be reading from verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, 
go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was the Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed, where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry if you don't know what that is, that's just an Anglican thing. You don't, don't worry about it. So in your Bibles, if you've got um, a physical Bible open in front of you, the passage that we're looking at today, just these um, short eight verses or so, often come with the heading. You know those little headings in italics you get sometimes in, Bible, um, in Bibles. Jesus heals ten men with leprosy. And the emphasis by lots of Bible commentators is very often in, this, in, in these few verses placed on the healing. Now, I want to suggest to us today that this, these verses from Luke's gospel aren't really about the healing itself, although the healing is amazing and healing is extraordinary, but it's more about people's response to the healing. It's more about people's response to what Jesus has done for them. Who's going to respond with gratitude and thanksgiving and who isn't? And so as we go through these verses today, we're going to be seeing these three different things that the human heart should be desperate for grace, for an encounter of grace that can only come from God. We're going to learn about undeserved grace, which is the love and the extravagant um, generosity that God pours out on us that's totally undeserved and unmerited. And then thirdly, the effects of that grace on us as disciples of Jesus. So firstly, we should be desperate for grace. So verse 11, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and has come to the part of his journey where Galilee borders Samaria. Now, Galilee, of course, was Jewish, part of Israel, and Samaria was kind of like a, this odd kind of land that was viewed as different by those who belonged and lived in Israel. People that lived in Samaria were known as Samaritans, and Jews considered them to be heretics. And vice versa, actually. Samaritans thought that Jews were heretics. They didn't get along. They hated each other, absolutely hated each other. And this detail will become important as we go through these verses together. And so in verse 12, Jesus is entering a village. And as he enters this village, there's 10 men who have leprosy and they kind of come to meet with Jesus. Now, this on the surface of it does not seem very surprising at all. You know, Jesus has always been having people come to meet him. Through the last few chapters of Luke's gospel, as we've been looking at it on a Sunday, lots of people have been healed by Jesus. Lots of people have come to Jesus to present themselves to him and ask for healing. However, to the first hearers of Luke or to the first readers of Luke, this would have been totally shocking and totally surprising. And the reason for that is this. The lepers of Jesus's day were absolutely rejected and ostracized. They were treated as total outcasts. So if you had leprosy and you were living in first century Palestine, first century Israel, by law, you were required never to enter a city or a town or a village. In fact, not only by law were you not allowed to enter a city or a town or a village, you had to live in specially built leper colonies. This is how these people were treated. They were totally ostracized, totally 
outcast. And as if that wasn't enough, if anyone who was normal was ever to approach somebody with leprosy, then the person with leprosy had to shout out in a loud voice, unclean, 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 three times so that nobody who was normal would come anywhere near them. Now, not to do this would land somebody with leprosy in serious trouble with the law. There'd have been serious repercussions for not behaving like this. Now, as shocking as this seems, this kind of attitude persisted towards people with leprosy even in this country until relatively recently. Even 100 years ago, people who had leprosy were treated as total outcasts. And actually, all over the world today, this kind of attitude towards people with leprosy still persists. So what's shocking about this is that in, in, in these eight verses, the lepers do cry out, but they don't cry out unclean, unclean, unclean. They cry out for mercy to Jesus. They cry out for a touch from him. Now to make this cry was a huge risk. It was a huge social risk because of what I've already said. They could have been in serious trouble for speaking to Jesus, a, a Jewish rabbi like this. But it was also an emotional risk. So think about the way that these people with leprosy must have viewed themselves and the way that they've been treated for the past however many years they've been ill. Never allowed in a town, a city or a village. Everybody that has gone near them has totally rejected them. And so as they cry out to Jesus, the thing that they, they face, the question that they probably have in the back of their minds is, will Jesus, like everybody else, reject me too? Put, just put yourself in their shoes. All you've known is rejection. All you've known is people treating you as different. If you were to cry out to this guy who had lots of followers and people were talking about him as if he was God, would you in the back of your mind think, gosh, if I do this, is he going to reject me just like everybody else has rejected me as well? But these people have totally run out of options. Now, I think that this is just a little glimpse, a little picture of what it's like for all of us actually to put our trust in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we look ridiculous and look silly, especially to the rest of the world for following Jesus. Like the people with leprosy in, in Luke chapter 17, we can look particularly vulnerable for saying that we follow Jesus. But like the people in Luke chapter 17, we too have recognised that Jesus is our only option. That without Jesus, we would be completely lost and alone and have no hope. So look at the words that the people of leprosy do cry out when they do cry out to Jesus. They cry out this, Jesus, master, have pity on us. Now there's a lot in this one cry from, from, the, from the lepers here. So what do they cry out? Well, firstly, they cry out Jesus. Now the name Jesus wouldn't have been lost on these people. Jesus means God saves or God delivers or God rescues. And in crying out the name of Jesus, Perhaps these lepers actually had confidence that Jesus really was who he said he was, that Jesus really could deliver them and rescue them and save them and heal them. So they cry out Jesus. The second thing they cry out is master, or in the Greek, epistata, which means so much more than master. The Greek language is so much more rich than the English language. Epistata means chief or commander as well as teacher. And so the lepers are recognising here that Jesus has authority. 
that he's Lord of all, that he has authority even over sickness. Jesus is the master of the universe, if you like. The final thing they cry out is have pity on us. The Greek word here is a liaison, which means to show compassion or mercy upon somebody. And the lepers here are actually recognizing something quite important, I think, that although Jesus is master of the entire universe, he also stops for the one. He also shows compassion on anybody that he is walking by, that he has mercy on us. Now, Paul would write in the New Testament, and this is an amazing thing, this is in Colossians, that Jesus created all things. That by Jesus, all things were created. Through Jesus, all things were created. And for Jesus were all things created. So Jesus is Lord, the commander of the universe. But despite being that, he loves those that he has created with an everlasting, amazing love. Despite being Lord of the universe, he'd stop when 10 lepers cry out to him and show compassion on him and show compassion on them and show mercy on them when most people would have ran away. Now, this just emphasizes the point that Jesus really is the God of the whole Bible. The God that the Bible talks about is Jesus Christ. This is the way that the Bible always talks about God. So, for example, one of my favorite Bible passages, Isaiah 40, it starts off on the absolute macro level of the universe talking about who God is. Um, in fact, the, um, Isaiah writes this, Who else but God has held the oceans in his hands? Who has measured the whole of the heavens with just his fingers? Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? And so you get this picture of the God of all of the universe. But then the passage takes this amazing, surprising turn. Isaiah then asks, have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth, but he never grows tired or weary no one can measure the depths of his understanding and he gives power to those who are weak and strength to the powerless. Those who trust in the Lord will have their strength renewed. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Jesus, the commander of the universe, and yet he loves you and me. He hears our prayer, he listens to our cries, and he stops for us. Now the lepers recognize this about Jesus. They're desperate for his grace, just as we should be. So the lepers cry out, but will they be met with rejection? Well, we actually see that the lepers um, are actually not met with rejection at all, but instead they encounter this undeserved, amazing grace. Jesus heals them. But look at how Jesus heals them. They're healed as they go. Jesus told them to go and present themselves to the priests, and by the time they get there, presumably they would have been healed, and indeed they were. 
Now, this request from Jesus requires some level of faith, doesn't it? Can you imagine if you'd had a condition for years and years and years, and Jesus said, if you go and present yourself to the priest down the road at the cathedral, by the time you get there, you'll be totally healed. And you go anyway, not knowing whether you have been healed or not at all. Now, I think there's a really important lesson for us here. And that's this, that healing often comes as we go, just through life. And it comes as we go together in community. Now, we passionately believe here at this church that God heals today. We passionately believe that God can do anything that he wants. And we've seen him do some of the most miraculous, extraordinary things. But sometimes healing just comes as we go about our daily lives and as we go about what it is that God has called us to do. So these lepers are healed. Now think about what this must have meant for these 10 lepers. They didn't have to live in a leper colony anymore. They could go back into the town or the city or the village and get a normal job. They could get married. They could have kids. They could earn a living. They could have a stable income. They could get a home. Jesus has done a wonderful, wonderful thing for them. And yet we read in verse 15 that only one of them comes back to thank Jesus and praise God. Despite the fact that Jesus has totally changed everything for them, their social status, Jesus has changed everything for them and only one of them comes back to thank Jesus. And notice that the one who comes back, comes back shouting and praising God. Now, this is a really important detail, and it's important because of what I said just a few moments ago. For all of this guy's life, certainly since he's got leprosy, all he's done is shout, walk around shouting out, unclean, 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 don't come near me, I'm unclean. And now he's to be found walking around and praising God, probably shouting hallelujah or something similar. His shouts have been completely transformed, which again is just a real picture of the transformation that Jesus offers all of us. Our whole lives are completely transformed when we encounter Jesus. And so this ex-leper now throws himself at Jesus's feet and worships him and thanks God for all that he has done. And the surprising thing, of course, is that this man is a Samaritan. Now, this is surprising because of all the men that have received healing, it's only the Samaritan, it's only the foreigner, it's only the, double, the doubly outcast person, if you like, that has come back to say thank you. Now, this is surprising because Jesus is a Jew. He's a well-regarded Jew. In fact, he's a rabbi. And Jews and Samaritans, as I've already said, absolutely hated each other. People that are hearing this read in the first few centuries, or you know, Luke's first hearers as this was read to, in churches or in synagogues around Israel, Palestine, Samaria, wherever it was, would have been absolutely shocked by this. Because the ones that should have come back were the Jewish ones to praise God and to thank him for all that he's done, but it's the Samaritan. Now the thing that this reminds us is that sometimes it's the people that we least expect to be part of the church. Sometimes it's the people that we least expect to be part of the kingdom of God that actually end up becoming part of it. So often churches end up looking like its leaders or the people that make up the bulk of the church. And so in churches like this, the danger is that we just become a middle class, white, elite group of people that are all, all gone to university or something similar. But we're reminded here that the gospel, the kingdom of God is for everybody. Everybody. 
There's nothing that you could do that would make God love you anymore. There's nothing that you could do that would make God love you any less. The first hearers of this, some of them would have really struggled with what's going on here. Would have really struggled that Jesus commended this foreigner, this Samaritan, for coming back and saying thank you. Now what's really going on here? Well, Jesus is redefining who is in and who is out. So the religious people in Jesus' times thought that the only people that were in were the religious elite or the people that followed all the rules and regulations. And yet here we see that it's nothing to do with that. This leper's in and he's not done anything to earn his place in the kingdom of God. He's not done anything to earn his healing. And yet Jesus tells him, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. In other words, Jesus is gathering people around him and explaining to people, and we're seeing it in action here, that the only way to freedom, the only way to true healing, the only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus has always taught. Think about some of the extraordinary, exclusive claims that Jesus made. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. These are pretty extraordinary, exclusive claims. And yet we're seeing it literally in action here. This leper, this ex-leper has come to Jesus and thrown himself at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says to him, your faith has made you well. Now, this is really good news for all of us here in St. Thomas's tonight, because it means that our freedom... Our salvation, our forgiveness, our relationship with God has nothing to do with us and everything to do with who Jesus is, everything to do with the fact that he has poured out his undeserved grace upon us. Now, this is at total odds to the way that most people in Jesus' day thought about religion. This is at total odds to the way that most people, even today, in 2019, all over the world, think about salvation and earning God's love. Tim Keller puts it like this. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheists might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They're a good person and they hope that eventually they will get a verdict that confirms that they're a good person from those around them but the performance of their lives leads to the verdict. For the Buddhists too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom and every day you are on trial. That's the problem. But in Christianity, the verdict leads to the performance. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? Now, this is, if this is right, and I believe that it is, this is extraordinarily good news for us. It means that before you even lift a finger, before you even get out of bed in the morning, there's nothing that you could do to unearn your salvation if you put your trust in Jesus. There's nothing that you could do that would make God love you any less than he already does because he speaks over you every single day. You are my child whom I love. With you, I am well pleased.
And there's nothing you can do to earn that. This is such good news. While the rest of society are on this never-ending hamster wheel of having to prove themselves to everybody else around them, of having to work hard to make up some kind of image or identity for themselves, we get released from all of that and God speaks over us, his affirmation and his love just because of who Jesus is. Every other religion, every other world religion operates on a meritocracy, if you like, where if your good outweighs your bad at the end of your life, and if God's in a particularly good mood, then he may let you into heaven and you can have eternal life. Or even worse, the only way to get into heaven is through perfect, is perfection, which is, of course, what Christians believe, except that Jesus takes on all of our imperfection on the cross so that we can be free. So that Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees perfection. This is what makes Christianity different from every other worldview that has ever existed in the history of humankind. Now, this leper did nothing to deserve his healing. Nothing to deserve this. It's just a sheer act of grace from Jesus. Now, if you've been shown that level of grace then the thing that should happen is that that grace should begin to transform you and it should begin to change you. You know, grace, if received properly by us, should change everything about us. Now, again, put yourself back in the story here, being one of the 10 lepers that has been sick. I'm sure that you'd like to think, if you were one of those 10, that you'd run back to Jesus and say thank you and, you know, praise God for all that he has done. But again, one of the surprising things about this story in Luke's gospel is that only one of them returns. Only one of them is thankful. Now, for those of us that know that Jesus has saved us and that Jesus really does love us, to have received that level of undeserved grace from God should lead us to be thankful, should lead us to live our lives with gratitude every single day. In fact, being a person of thanksgiving is one of the marks of being a disciple of Jesus. But we're not always great at that, are we? Particularly here in Britain, we love a good moan. We love a whinge about the weather. And lots of us have been doing it today already. The British are well known for gossiping about people and being negative about people behind other people's backs. Or think about our attitude towards sports. So only two years ago, less than two years ago, England, the England national football team were like the best thing since sliced bread and we were going to win the World Cup and football's coming home and all of that kind of stuff. And it was the future age of golden, the golden years of British football. We lost our first competitive qualifying match in years, yes, um, two days ago to the Czech Republic. And you'd think just by looking at the press that the world was going to end that somehow England have suddenly become the worst football team overnight. It's just in our human nature to behave like this. There was a poll that I read just recently, um, which was a survey of people from different countries and um, other nationalities, ranking what they liked most about British people and British culture, and ranking what they liked the least about British people and British culture. And there was lots that people liked about Britain and our culture and all those kinds of things. The thing that people dislike the most about Britain was the fact that its people are so negative and that we complain and grumble all of the time. That's the number one thing that puts people off British people. 
Now, I think that the Bible teaches us that being thankful and having a heart of gratitude is actually good for us. But in recent years, scientific surveys have actually begun to back this up. So there was a headline that I read just this week, which, and the title of the headline in this news article was this, Why Grateful People Live Longer and Live a Happier Life. And this was based on scientific research. And this um, news article basically highlighted seven things that if you practice thankfulness and pr practice gratitude, these seven things will happen in your life. Firstly, and this should be no surprise, you'll be happier. So if you practice thankfulness, you'll be happier. Secondly, if you practice gratitude and being thankful, you'll be physically healthier, which is surprising, but there you go, it's, it's out there. And um, if you practice thankfulness, you'll have better relationships. If you practice thankfulness, you'll be more resilient. If you practice thankfulness, you'll sleep better at night. So people who practice gratitude and thankfulness actually sleep for longer and have less interruptions in their night's sleep than those who are grumpy and grumble all the time. Sixth, sixthly, you'll have a higher life satisfaction. And seventh, you'll be less materialistic. Now, if you practice thankfulness, this is what the science is saying will actually happen to you. Now, if you don't believe me, let me just draw on one report that this news article highlighted. So the University of California in Berkeley recently took, um, engaged in a scientific experiment. And they basically split people up into three different groups. And they asked these three different groups to keep a journal for 10 weeks. The first group, they asked um, the first group to write down every single day for 10 weeks, 10 things that really annoyed them that day. And that's what they had to do at the end of every day, write down the 10 things that had really annoyed them. The second group were just told to write down 10 things and were given absolutely no encouragement whatsoever. They just had to write down 10 random things that had happened to them that day or whatever. The third group though, were told that they had to write 10 things that they were thankful or grateful for. Now, each of these three, week, uh, three groups did this for 10 weeks. And at the end of this experiment, by the, by the end, the group who had to write 10 things that they were thankful for every single day were 40%. Great to see you, boys. Come back again. Um, the group who had to write 10 things um, that they were thankful for every single day, they were 40% happier than those who'd not done anything. So just the art of, and the practice of being thankful radically changed this group's life. Now it also reduces materialism. So just, and this should make absolute sense. So if I'm thankful for this very cheap but functional Android tablet that I have here that I'm preaching from, that cost me 98 pounds from Argos four years ago. If I'm thankful for it, then it means that when the latest Apple iPad comes out next year or whatever, and it costs 900 pounds and does exactly the same stuff anyway, it means I'm not gonna be longing for the new thing because I'm thankful for what I already have. If I'm thankful for the clothes that I already have on my body, and I think that they're enough and they're good enough, when I go to, down the high street, I'm not tempted to buy new clothes every day because I'm thankful for what I already have. Charles Spurgeon, great Christian preacher said this, it is not how much we have but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. It is not how much we have, but how much we enjoy that makes happiness. Now, I think that this is why the Bible, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, give thanks in all, of, all circumstances. What the Bible does not say is give thanks for 
all circumstances. So when you've had a bad day, a really bad day, you don't have to go home to your friend or your spouse or your grandma or whoever and say, I'm really thankful for that bad day. If you've had some really devastatingly bad news, it doesn't mean that you have to give thanks for the bad news. But what we can learn to do is give thanks in the difficulties. We can learn to give thanks in the storms of life. And when we do that, we remember that it's God who's in control and that he's given us lots of stuff anyway. If you're sat in this room today, you're in the top 2% of the wealthiest people probably in the world. You've got a roof over your head. You've had something to eat for breakfast or lunch or both already today. There's lots that we can be thankful for. And it's giving thanks in all the circumstances of life that completely leads to a transformation of how we feel about ourselves, about God, and about each other. John Piper said this, giving thanks with the mouth stirs up thankfulness in the heart. In other words, thanksgiving is a practice. Sometimes we literally have to do what the University of California did to those three different groups, but just do what the third group did. Just write 10 things that we're thankful for every single day. And as we do that, I bet that we see a difference in our lives. And so a challenge that I'm setting myself this week, and I invite us all to join in with this, is to at the end of every single day, just in our journals, if you keep journals, or as you read the Bible, or as you pray, whatever it is you do at the end of, end of your day, write down the 10 things that you were thankful for. There will be, I promise you, there'll be 10 things. And as you do it, I bet the whole fabric of your discipleship of your life begins to change. And you'll see that God has provided so generously for you. You'll see that he's poured undeserved, amazing grace over you. And as you do that, you'll also see that you are desperate for that grace every single day and that you come to rely on all that God has done for you. Now, the grace that this ex-leper received totally transformed him. Jesus says to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now, there's a few challenges from these verses today. The first thing is for us to recognize that we have a desperate need. All of us have a desperate need for the grace of Jesus Christ. We can try and be like everybody else in the world. We can try and keep our own identity going and, you know, that's fine, but it's exhausting. If our identity is constantly, you know, how many likes we get on Instagram or how well we're doing at university or our latest exam result or our, what our job is or anything like that, one day it's all going to disappear. And what's left? Nothing. Some of us are trapped in religion thinking that we have to earn God's love. We have to earn his forgiveness. It's exhausting. There's nothing that you could do that would make God be impressed. He loves you just as you are. And so the challenge for us is to recognize that we all have this need for undeserved grace. The second thing, though, is to recognize that Jesus has given us it in going to the cross, in dying for us and rising to new life. He has shown and poured out on all of us undeserved, amazing grace. Perhaps you're hearing this for the first time today. This is how much God loves you, that him, he, God himself, would come to earth as a human, die for you, and rise again. 
Today you can know freedom and love and forgiveness and grace. It's a free gift. The third thing that we may, that the third challenge from, from these verses is, of course, for us to begin to practice being thankful. Even when we want to whinge and when we want to grumble, try practicing being thankful for what God has already given us. And I think the promise of not just this passage, but the, the whole Bible, in fact, the whole life of discipleship, as we, as we see what others have done down the years, is that as we practice thankfulness, our lives will change. We'll begin to be grateful for what God has given us. And we'll see that it's God who is in control of our lives. So I'm just going to leave just a moment of silence now. And I wonder if any of those three things you want to particularly engage with tonight. Perhaps as we just wait on the Holy Spirit now, you want to decide that this week you're going to practice thanksgiving. You don't want to be like the nine, um, the nine Jewish lepers in this story and not give thanks to God for all the stuff that he's given you. You want to, buy, you want to be like this outcast foreigner, but so you can experience more of Jesus. And if you're here today and this is the first time you're hearing about the amazing good news of Jesus. My encouragement to you is that following Jesus is the best thing that you can ever do. It is the best news. And Jesus' Jesus's invitation to you today is to begin to follow him. If that's for you, I'm going to pray a very simple prayer and you can pray this just in the quiet of your heart. And if you do this, um, what I'd love for you to do after I pray this prayer is just to make a little cross on, the, um, on your welcome card that you filled in earlier. If you haven't filled one in already, fill it in just so that we know that you've decided today that you want to know more about Jesus and that you've started to follow him. So this is the prayer. God, thank you that you love me so much that Jesus came to the earth for me. I say sorry for all the wrong in my life. Thank you that you took all of that on the cross and rose to new life so that I could be free. Come into my life and give me a fresh start by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.